Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, we've been doing a series for the last couple of weeks that we're calling Steadfast. And very simply, that, that, that's what we're talking about, the importance of being steadfast in our walk with the Lord. We've defined steadfast as the ability to stay on course, not, not just to start off in a direction, but to stay true to that direction and get to your destination. Because if you begin, it's wonderful to begin, it's great to get started, but if you get turned around somewhere on the journey, then really, what was the point? Starting is great, but what you want to get is arriving at your destination. It's great when people accept Jesus as Savior. We celebrate that. The Bible tells us all heaven celebrates that. We love that. But if people only make it a month or two, and then they fall away, then... uh, We want people to arrive in heaven, amen? Jesus warned us that in the last days, the love of many would grow cold. The Bible is filled with warnings about falling, falling away. When a warning is given, it's given because there must be something you can do about it to prevent it. That's the purpose of a warning, to let you know this danger exists, so do whatever necessary to avoid that that danger. Jesus didn't just tell us the love of many will grow cold so we can shrug and say, isn't that a shame? Oh my goodness, isn't that a terrible thing? He told us that as a warning so that we could prepare ourselves and make sure I'm not going to be one of those whose love grows cold. And neither are you in Jesus' name. We're going to take the necessary steps to make sure that we stay steadfast. Being steadfast is enormously important. Let let me read a couple of verses. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 21, it says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works... Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. We'll, we'll keep reading, but he's saying you used to be far away. You were, you're, because of your wicked works, you were alienated from the presence of God. But because of what Jesus did in his flesh, now you can be reconciled. Now, now you can know him. Reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Isn't that wonderful? We can be presented holy and blameless and above reproach, but that's not the end of the sentence. If, if, it's all hinging on something. It's wonderful for us to celebrate that part. I've been rescued, now I'm holy and I'm blameless and I'm right with God. Yes, that's great. If, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. All of that hinges on a person remaining steadfast in their faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. We're giving these warnings in Scripture. It's wonderful what Jesus has done for us. It's wonderful where we're headed in our relationship with him, what he's prepared for us. But it's hinging on whether you and I remain steadfast or not. And I know we can get into doctrinal issues about once saved, always saved, all that kind of stuff. But there's, there's repeated warnings. I just read you a couple of them that those warnings are, aren't for nothing. If he's warning you need to remain steadfast, that means there's a possibility of people not being steadfast. So we've been talking about certain things we can do to ensure that we remain steadfast. We started a couple of weeks ago talking about not loving the world. 
being careful where we put our affections. Because wherever you set your affections, you're going to begin to move in that direction. You move in the direction of your affection. We talked about Demas. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Demas is forsaken. He's deserted. He's bailed out. And he told us why. He said, having loved this present world. He stopped doing what God had called him to do because somewhere along the line, he set his affections on things that were temporary, things that didn't really matter, this present world, and he ended up moving in that direction. We talked about the story of the prodigal son. That son didn't leave home because he hated his dad and he hated the house he lived in. He hated the food that he ate. It wasn't, it wasn't that. It was that he began to love what the world had to offer. And setting his affection on the wild living and the partying and all that, all that it had to offer is what drew him away from the Father. And it's the same thing that happens in the life of some believers. It's not that they decide, I hate Jesus. I don't like him anymore. No, it's that they begin to become infatuated. They set their affections on the things of this world and you move. Move in the direction of your affection. So we talked about guarding our hearts. Don't fall in love with this present world. Guard what you begin to lust or set your affection after. Then last week we talked about making sure that our focus is ahead of us and not behind us. Just like driving a car, if you want to remain on course, you can't be looking out the back window all the time or messing with your phone. You've got to keep your eyes on on the road. Paul talked about that in Philippians chapter 3. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind me, I focus on what lies ahead. Now, obviously, there's balance to that. We thank God for the testimonies that we have in the past. We learn lessons from mistakes in the past. But it's when the past becomes a distraction and pulls our focus off what lies ahead. If you want to remain on course, you can't be looking back. And we talked about some of the things in our lives that the enemy uses to draw our focus backwards instead of forwards. We looked at what Jesus said when he said, remember Lot's wife. She looked backward and was turned into a pillar of of salt. So we talked about how looking back doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but Jesus said, look at her life as an example. Looking back will cost you more than you think it's going to cost you. Looking back can turn you into something that you never expected to become. Looking back can cause people to become bitter, stagnant, cold in their love for the Lord. It it, it doesn't seem like a big deal. What's the big deal about looking back? It's a bigger deal than you think. Jesus said, ask Lot's wife. We talked about one of the things that causes people to look backwards is they, they look back at the life of sin that they came out of. And the enemy will try to romanticize. And co- remember, remember the way things used to be? It used to be so free. You used to have so much fun and get you looking back at, at, at what used to be. And it was so wonderful. I just followed my heart and I did whatever. It wasn't that wonderful. You're being deceived. Just like Lot's wife looking back. That, Looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't a wonderful place. It was a place of death and judgment. Fire and sulfur were raining down on it when she looked back. There's nothing for you to long for in the life that you came out of. It was so wonderful. It wasn't that wonderful. That's why you asked Jesus to rescue you out of it. Don't let the enemy convince you that you had it so good back. that You're being deceived. We talked about the importance of seeing sin for what it is. You've got to see sin for what it is. It's death. It deserves God's judgment. It's nothing, it's nothing to be fond of and remember and be nostalgic about. It's something horrible that would take you to hell if it weren't for the mercy of God and the price that Jesus paid. That's how we've got to see it. You know, the Bible says in the book of James that God doesn't tempt people and he can't be tempted. God himself, he's not tempted with sin. You know why he's not tempted? Because he sees sin for what it is. He understands what 
what it is. And when you see it for what it is, there's nothing appealing about it. So when you're being tempted by sin, you can know, I'm not seeing this properly. Because if I saw it properly, I'm off in my perception. If I could see this properly, I'd know there's nothing appealing about it. Paul talked about how those things in his previous life, he said, I consider them all dung compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus. It's all dung. You know what dung is? That's Bible talk for poop. Right? He said, that's what it is to me. There's nothing appealing about poop, is there? It's gross for me to even say the word. That's why they say dung instead of poop, because it sounds ridiculous. Now, if I, if I had a tray of brownies up here this morning, I might be able to convince you, oh, oh these brownies, they're, they're still warm. They just came out of the oven. I might be able to entice you. I do like a good brownie. I do like brownies. He said they're fresh. They've got to be good. I might be able to entice you until you realize that they weren't really brownies. They were something my dog produced in the backyard. If you knew that's what it was, right, it, it would lose its appeal unless you're insane. You, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I wouldn't be able to entice you. The only way I could entice you is you, if you didn't understand what it really is. Paul said, I, I know all of that stuff is dung compared to knowing Jesus. He wasn't being poetic. He was telling you he was on his vantage point. No, the, the way I see it, he matured in his faith to a point where you, you couldn't allure him away with the things of this world. He understood what they were. We've got to see sin for what it is. God's not trying to keep us from having a good time. He's trying to spare us from death and judgment. He has only good things prepared for us. Amen? So don't allow the enemy to get you to romanticize looking over your shoulder about what used to be. And if you could just go back and enjoy those pleasures one last time, you're being deceived. You're not seeing it for what it really is. We've got to keep our eyes focused on what's ahead. So we talked about those couple of things. We're actually going to conclude this series today. But I want to talk about a few more things that will help us to remain steadfast. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. I thank you for each person here. Father, I ask that you would bless each one of us with a spirit of revelation, with a spirit of understanding, so that we could know you more. Father, flood our hearts with light. Holy Spirit, you're our teacher. I pray the truth of your word would bring freedom. It would build people up and encourage them. That the light of your word would just remove darkness from every person's heart, every person's mind. We love you, Lord. Bless us with eyes to see and ears to hear. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever known anyone who was unstable? Husbands and wives don't look at one another. If you've known someone who's unstable, I've known some people who were unstable. When I was in college, I had a pretty good friend that could probably be described as being unstable. He was a great guy, but you, you never knew what you were going to get with him because he was all over the place, which in a way was kind of efficient because it was like I had 10 friends in one. He, he, was, my, he was my high energy, you know, let, let's go, we can do it kind of friend. He was also my melancholy friend. He was my we can take the world friend, nothing can stop us friend. He was my also, what's the point? Life is just a waste. He was my, uh, you know, introspective, philosophical friend. He, he was like all the kinds of friends you want in one, in one person. He was unstable. Great guy, but he was unstable. 
He would talk about what he wanted to be. You know, we're in college, and he's thinking about career, uh, career choices. He, he was all over the place. He wanted to be a banker. I want to be a businessman. I'm going to be a banker. The corporate world, that's where it is. That would be one day, and the next day, now, listen, corporate world, it's, it's just a rat race. I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to backpack across the United States. I'm just going to live off the land, find myself a woman, and just, just be free. And the next time you talk to him, he'd be talking about, you know what, I think I'm going to try to get on the PGA Tour. I think I'm a pretty good golfer. I'm, he, was, he was all over the place. You never knew what you were going to get with him. He, he was one thing one day, another way. I mean, it could change from hour to hour. He was unstable. Unstable is not a, a real good quality in a person. He was a great guy, but that's not something that you're looking for. If you're looking to hire somebody, you're not looking for someone who has instability on their their resume. This person's got a great education, a lot of experience. This person's unstable. Uh, It's going to be hard. You you don't want someone that's unstable, right? Because you don't know what you're going to get. Christians can be some of the most unstable people. They can be all over the place led by their emotions, led by their their feelings. We can be so unstable. You can be with a Christian. It depends what day of the week, what kind of person you're going to be with. They're one person on a Sunday morning. They're another kind of person on a Monday morning. They're a completely different kind of person on a Friday night. it, It just depends. They allow their circumstances. They allow their situation to constantly sway them. And they're just molding and morphing and mutating into whatever is most convenient, They are unstable, and unstable is not a quality that helps people remain steadfast. They're led by their emotions. They call anything a leading because we want to be led by the Spirit. They'll label anything they want to do as, I just felt led to, and it's an excuse to engage in any kind of behavior. I've heard people say they felt led to do all kinds of crazy things. I've had people meet with me and tell me they felt led to have premarital sex. I I just felt felt led to. I, I just really felt like the Lord was laying that on my... You're crazy. You're unstable. That doesn't even make any, any sense. Christians can be unstable. You look, look at the body of Christ as a whole and the way that people bounce from church to church over all kinds of things. If, you, if you, you're from a different church, don't feel condemnation. I'm from a different church too. I'm just saying in general how, how easily people just bounce around. There's instability. Even in the body of Christ, people just ricocheting around depending on what mood they're in or what happened at the last church or what's going on. If you were here last week, we did that little video for Father's Day, and Pastor Jonathan, talking about the impact that his dad had on him, he said one of the greatest things that his dad did for him was to get him planted in a church and be stable. He said that's one of the greatest things his dad provided for him was stability. Through ups and downs, hard times, good times, he remained stable. Pastor Jonathan, this is the church he started off in as a child. He's still seeing the fruit of that. Obviously, if there's, the Lord's genuinely leading you to another church. I, I understand that. I'm using it as an example of just how unstable the body of, the body of Christ is. And just, we need to be stable and not allow different situations, different circumstances to cause us to, to change the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we behave, the way that we believe. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes about this, and he talks about it as being a mark of immaturity. He talks about children being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the cunningness of men and the, the deceptiveness of, of the enemy, just constantly back and forth. It's a mark of immaturity to, to constantly be all over the place. We need to be stable. We need to be steadfast. 
not moved by what's going on around us. The people of God allowing circumstances to sway them is unfortunately nothing new. Let me read you from Psalms 137. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us required mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They're carried away exile. It says we hung up our harps. How are we supposed to sing God's praises here? How are we going to praise God in these circumstances? Now, back home, it was easy to praise God. The conditions were right. We had, we had a building that was set up for it. We had the perfect setting. We were, la- we were living in a land flowing with milk and honey. We knew the presence of God and the blessing of it. It was easy to praise God then. That was different. It was conducive to praising God. But things have taken a turn for the worse. This is a different situation. Things are really difficult. How do you expect me to praise God in this circumstance? They allowed, they allowed what was going on in their life to sway them. And when you think about it, if you only praise God based on the conditions being conducive, it's not really God you're praising. You're praising the situation. You're praising the circumstances. If the only time you praise God is when everything lines up, it's not really God that you're worshiping. It's the circumstances you're excited about. Because God doesn't change. His wor- we praise God because he's worthy, because he deserves our praise. Amen? That, that's why we, that doesn't change. If that's really why we worship, then we should be able to worship him and give him praise no matter what the situation is. Because the, the source or the cause of the worship, what should be the cause, he is worthy. My, my praise belongs to him. He's holy. There's nobody like him. I was made to worship him. That doesn't change. So if it's just based on my circumstances, then it's really my circumstances that I'm excited about instead of his worthiness that I'm excited about. But they, they allowed themselves to be swayed and changed based on what was going on. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. Second Kings chapter three. I'll give you a little bit of a background of what's going on. There are three kings that are working together: the king of Edom, the king of Israel, and the king of Judah. Have all come together, and they're going out to fight against Moab. They're on their way. They're marching out. They're going to go and, and wage war against the nation of Moab. But as they're on their way. They run out of water, and they go seven days with no water. And then finally, one of the kings speaks up and says, man, maybe we should check in with God. Maybe we should ask him, like, are we, are we in line here? Are we okay? Is, is there a prophet that we can call and, and have him inquire of, of God for us? So they end up calling Elisha. They said, well, yeah, there's this prophet, Elijah. He's the guy that poured water on the hands of Elijah. We could call him and ask him to come. And so that's where we're picking up the story, verse 14. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regarded the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. So he wasn't a big fan of the king of Israel or the king of Edom. He said, if it were for you two guys, I wouldn't even show up. But because I have respect for the king of Judah, that's the only reason I'm here. Verse 15, but now bring me a musician 
Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stone. So they, they call for the prophet. They call for Elisha. And, and, and he says, bring me a musician. Bring me a minstrel. The, the, the musician comes and they begin to play. The music's playing. It says the hand of God settled down on him. The presence of God comes into that place. And then Elisha begins to prophesy. He begins to speak. You need to fill this valley with ditches. Dig a bunch of ditches because God's hand is going to move and he's going to fill. It's not going to rain, but water is going to come. And you're going to have plenty of what you've been struggling with, that thirst that you've been dealing with. God's going to satisfy that need. Your cattle are going to drink water. Your animals are going to drink water, you're going to enjoy abundance. But that's going to be a small thing. God's going to do even more than that. After you drink that water God's going to provide, you're going to march out and you're going to be victorious. You are going to destroy Moab. Every fortified city you come against, you're going to take it. You're going to destroy the land so completely that even the trees are going to feel the wrath. They're going to feel the impact of the victory that you're going to win. So there's this powerful moment where the Spirit of God is moving, the music is playing, everybody's feeling good. You can imagine what that environment would be like, right? He's speaking this word. It's nothing but good news. They're, they're, you're getting pumped up. Let's dig some ditches. Guys, chest bumping each other. Yeah, let's dig ditches. God's for us. He's not against us. He's going to do these wonderful things. It's a powerful moment. So that's what one day looked like. But you know what the next day looked like? The musician's not playing anymore. He's gone. Elisha's back home. Now it's time to dig the ditches. Right? There's, there's one environment where, man, it's, just, it's awesome. They're receiving the call. They're receiving the word of God. The music's playing. It's amazing. And there's another environment where all you hear is shovels hitting the dirt and digging, digging ditches. They, they felt certain things in one environment, and that's important. That's special. But it means nothing if when you step out of that environment, you don't follow through on what you received, the instruction you received in the first environment. When the, when the music stops and the man of God isn't speaking words over you and the goosebumps aren't, aren't on your arms anymore, what are you going to do in those moments? Because if you're not steadfast, if you don't carry out what God spoke to you in the powerful moment, then it, it, it means nothing. You've got to allow what you receive in the moment where everything feels good. You've got to carry it out when the feelings are gone and it just feels like work. That, that's what it means to be steadfast. When Pastor Jonathan isn't strumming and singing like a bird up here and it's easy to praise God and yes, I love the Lord and everything's wonderful. Well, tomorrow morning, it's just gonna feel like work serving God. Are you gonna continue to be steadfast when the circumstances change? There's certain environments when you receive the call, when you receive a word from God, that, that's one thing and that's special, that's important. But it doesn't feel the same when you actually carry out the call. And that, that's where people allow themselves to get derailed. Man, I was so excited in that service. I was so excited in my devotions. I was so excited in that time of worship. Look, look here what I wrote down. I took good notes. God was speaking to me. But then, you know, a week later, man, I just wasn't feeling it anymore. I'm starting to wonder if, listen, when the feelings are gone, that, that's when you've got to be steadfast. 
I don't know if Pastor Jonathan remembers this. I got to be his youth pastor. And we were away on a retreat one time, up in the mountains at a cabin, just a little youth retreat, time of worship, music's playing, kids are praying for one another, just a powerful time. And I remember he, I could picture right where he was sitting. He was sitting like on the, in front of a fireplace, on the stone in front of the fireplace. I looked over him and he's praying and I just felt, because up until that time, I'd never heard him talk about ministry. I don't think he knew what he was going to do. I looked at him, I just felt he's struggling with maybe feeling called into the ministry. So I went over to him, I said, are you, you feel like maybe God's calling you into the ministry? Yeah. And we prayed together. So that, that was it not an ideal environment, a bunch of friends in the mountains, worship music playing. What, that, that, that's a good feeling. That's wonderful. And I haven't talked to him about this, but if you ask him, what, the good feeling in that moment, there's been times in carrying out the call where it didn't, just, it didn't feel like receiving the call. There's been times we had to leave home and go to Bible school, do difficult things, do things that were hard where there, there was no feeling. There was negative feeling. It was difficult. It was trying. But that's what it means to be steadfast. Anyone can receive the call. You've got to carry out the instruction that you receive. That, that's what it means to be steadfast and not allow a change, a change in what's going on around you, a change in the people around you, a change in the circumstances circumstance to dictate your path. You receive what God's called you to do and you make up your mind. This is what I'm going to do no matter what. And what we've got to keep coming back to, you've got to keep coming back to what did God say to you? You've got to keep coming back to the word of God. If they wanted to see the blessing that was promised through the prophecy, you know what they needed to do? Go back to what God told them to do. Fill this valley full of what, what did God say? What did God say? That's where you and I have to keep coming back to. What does the word of God say? If you want to be steadfast, you've got to allow God's word to really, really be a lamp unto your feet. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Most of you are familiar with John the Baptist, an incredible man of God. He was the forerunner to Jesus. His job was to prepare the way. And so he would preach to people and he would have crowds of people around him. He had a powerful ministry, baptizing people, preaching repentance, preaching that the kingdom of God was a coming. His ministry was so powerful that people would ask him, you're talking about the Messiah coming. Are you sure you're not him? Are you the Messiah? And he would have to tell them, no, I'm not him. I'm not the one. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. He got his identity from the word of God. He got it from a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. He knew God's word. That gave him his his identity. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. And then God revealed to him that Jesus was the Messiah. And he told the people, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He's, he's the one. I've been telling you he's coming. Look, there, there he is. And he baptizes him. The dove, dove descends. You, you know that passage of scripture. And then the focus of what was going on at that time shifted from John the Baptist to Jesus. Even John's own disciples left him, some of them, and began to follow Jesus. And John the Baptist was okay with that. He even said, listen, I've, I've got to decrease so that he can increase. But his situation changed so drastically that he went from being a, a powerful minister, people surround him, to eventually where he's sitting in a dungeon somewhere. And it seems like 
that that change in circumstances started to push against him to the point where he was beginning to be swayed by what was going on. He was so certain. It was his job, his calling, his purpose in life was to say, this is the guy, he is the one. And then he got to a point where he's sending his disciples. Guys, will you go ask him, is he the one? Is he really the one? Should Man, did I miss it? Did I just waste my life? Did I just declare he's the one when he's not? Should, should we actually be waiting for someone else? Circumstances changed. And even as mighty of a man as John the Baptist was, he was beginning to feel that pressure. So he sent his disciples, go, go, go and ask Jesus. They come and they ask him. That's what we'll pick up. John chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus answered and said to them. This is John the Baptist's disciples. They've asked him, are you the one or should we wait for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John, the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Are you the one? John, John wants to know, are you the one? Should we wait waiting for somebody else? Go and tell them the things that you see. Blind people see, deaf people hear. Lame people walk. Now, what Jesus was doing was not just saying, you tell me. Draw your own. You tell him what's going on. He'll draw his own conclusions. That's not what he was doing. He was actually doing what we just said is important for us to do. When you start to feel pressures, circumstances start to push against you, try to drive you off course, Jesus was directing John the Baptist back to where he got his start in the first place, directing him back to the word of God. Let me read you from Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35, starting in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees, which sounds like maybe what was going on in John's, John's life at this point. He needed to be firmed up. He needed to be strengthened. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. This is a prophecy about God coming. Prophecy about the Messiah. He will come and save you. That's what John was talking about. Are you the one that comes to save us? Listen to these next verses. Then, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like deer and the tongue of the dumb sing for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. When Jesus said, go and tell them the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, he wasn't just saying, hey, I think my work speaks for itself. He was directing John the Baptist back to someplace he knew John was familiar with, back to the scripture. If you want to be stable, if you want to be steadfast and not get, get discouraged, not get off course, we've got to keep ourselves focused on the word of God and let the word rule us and ground us and keep us from being swayed. Even when John the Baptist was being swayed, Jesus said, you know what you need to do? You, you, you need to keep yourself in the word of God. What does God's word have to say about this? What does God's word have to say? Directed him back to the word of God. You, you've got to keep God's word in your heart, to hide it in your heart. What does God's word have to say about this situation? When circumstances are unpleasant, not favorable, instead of being swayed, what does God's word have to say? What wasn't too long ago where there was a lot of pressure not to have church? People in the community upset, you shouldn't have church. Don't you care about people's health? 
be a, a lot more convenient to just not have church. But, well, that, that's one thing. What people are saying, what the news is saying, what, what your friends are saying, what, what culture is saying. Okay, that's one thing. What does God's word say? What does the word of God say? Oh, it says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Even more so as you see the day approaching. So the later the hour gets, the more important it is that we have times like this. Okay, I, I, know, I know what the news is saying, and I know what people are saying, and I know that people are upset with us, and I know people are, are, are saying bad things, and we could just be better members of the community. If we, that those things can't sway us. What does God's word have to say? That's got to be the rudder. That's got to be the guide in, in our lives. And I'm using that as, as an example all over the place. In your marriage, well, you know what? I, but marriage is tough. It's difficult. When, when I married her, she wasn't this way. She seems so selfish. And I'm just not getting out of this relationship what I want out of this relationship. And so it seems like I'm pretty justified in taking the fall. No, no, I know the pressures you're feeling. I know you can justify it and make a good case. But what, what's supposed to guide us? What does God's word have to say? It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid himself down for her. So as a husband, my focus needs to be on how can I sacrifice? What can I lay down to prove my love? Not what can I gain? So even though there's different pressures and it it seems pretty acceptable in culture and it seems like everyone, no, no, no. What does God's word have to say? I'm just throwing out a couple of examples. There's areas in your life where you feel pressure to turn aside, to make a compromise, to do something that's a little more convenient. You could argue your case, just be a little dishonest on your taxes and save yourself. There's there's all kinds of areas where we can do that. What what has to guide us, you got to come back to the word of God, and that's what keeps people from turning to the left or to the right, if you want to be steadfast, you've got to live in line with the word of God. And I know that you, you know that, but people don't know that because they don't do it. I, we know how important the word of God is. No, you don't because you, you don't spend time in it like you should. So you know it in your head, but you don't know it in your heart. You've got to spend time in God's word. We're halfway through the year. We've got six-month Bible reading plans available in the lobby. Find some way to really get in God's word and hide it in your heart and let it be that lamp. Let it be that light that teaches you how to live your life. And when you feel pressure, you're not sure what to do, it seems like I should. What does God's word have to say? It addresses every area of life. How to handle your money. How to find a spouse how to be a spouse, how to be a parent, how to be an employee, how to be an employer, how to be a neighbor. It addresses everything. What does God's word have to say? So that's the first one. If we want to be steadfast, we don't want to allow circumstances to sway us. God's word has to take priority in our lives. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter five, starting in verse eight, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. 
passage of scripture we're familiar with. Be sober, be vigilant, keep yourself alert, keep yourself awake, keep yourself aware. There's a devil, he's real, and he's looking to destroy you. He's, he's doing anything he can. He's focused on pulling you off that course. He doesn't want you to be steadfast because he's aware, even if you aren't, that the blessing of God is contingent on that if that we read at the beginning, that you're gonna receive that blessing if you remain steadfast. So even though you've started down the path, if he can derail you, then he still wins. He's looking to mess you up up in your walk with the Lord. So it says, resist him, resist him. How do we resist him? Resist him steadfast in the faith. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Resisting the devil, one of the prime ways that you resist the devil is by just having a determination I'm going to keep the faith. I know that sounds really simple, but, but it's also a key. That, that's what we're talking about. Just having your mind made up that you, you've really committed. You've already made the decision. No, I'm following Jesus. I've, made, I've already made up my mind. The decision's been made. I'm, I've decided I'm following Jesus. Have you ever made a commitment, but you weren't really committed to the commitment? When I was in sixth or seventh grade, I had some friends that were into swim team. They're all, they, they love swim team. I was new to the area, kind of, you know, wanted to do what my friends were doing. So I signed up to be on swim team. So I, I committed, I committed, I'm going to be part of the swim team. But in that commitment, I wasn't really committed. I was just checking it out. I'm just kind of exploring what swim team is like. And as the season went on, I realized I'm not a big fan of being on the swim team. It's hard, it's difficult, it's really boring. I had to wear a Speedo. For a seventh grade boy in a Speedo, I mean. So about halfway through the season, I quit. I quit, because I I committed, but I didn't really commit. I was like trying to decide if I was really committed. I committed, but I I wasn't committed. Part of remaining steadfast is just to make an actual real decision. I have committed myself. I've not been a perfect husband. Beth and I have had different issues we've had to work through in our marriage. But one thing that we've done right is from the very beginning, we knew divorce is just not an option. The people that counseled us in premarital counseling, if we got anything out of that, it was just that one thing. It's It's just not an option. Till death do us part, which means we can kill each other, but we can't divorce each other. We, we, we got to figure things out because that, that's, that's off the table for us. So we, we've had to figure some things out. There had been moments that if divorce was an option, we, we would have taken it. But because we were committed, we're going to see this thing through. It forced us to figure things out because that, we were committed to being married. You've got to approach your walk with Jesus the same way, to make a determination. I'm not checking this thing out. I'm not exploring it. As long as things go okay, you know, I'll stick with it. No, I've decided to follow Jesus, and that's that. I'm never going to turn away. I'm never going to stop. There's a determination. He says to resist the devil. How? By being steadfast. I've determined. I'm holding on to my faith. I'm never letting go. I don't care what happens. I don't care if you persecute me. I don't care if you make fun of me. I don't care if you kill me. I'm never going to stop following Jesus. That kind of steadfastness, it's it's a decision that you make. It's an attitude that you have. Turn turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. If you're familiar with the story of of Daniel, it's another time where God's people were taken into exile. So Daniel lived in Judah. Babylon, who's led by King Nebuchadnezzar, 
was the, the dominating force in the world, and they were taking territory all over the place, and they came, and they defeated Judah. They captured them, and they took some of the people, and they carried them away back to Babylon. So Daniel's essentially a prisoner of war. Can you imagine what that would be like? It, it's just a, a Bible story to some of us, but if you imagine what it would be like if another country came and defeated us and then loaded you up and took you away from your home, took you away from your family, took you to some strange land that you'd never been to before, what, what that would be like to be captured, to be a prisoner of war like, like Daniel was and these other men. And they get, to, they get to Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, here's what I want you to do. He tells his guys, I want you to go and get some handsome men, some really bright ones, pick out you know, uh, some of the really sharp guys, and we're going we're gonna to incorporate them. We're just going to kind of graft them into our culture so they kind of become part of us instead of just against us all the time. We're going to make them part of us. I want you to train them, teach them the language, teach them our ways. So they go and they, they get a bunch of these men, and Daniel's one of them. And he says, you know what? I want you to teach them and train them. I want you to give them the best that the land has to offer. Instead of being sad that they're here, I want you to make them pumped that they're here. Feed them the best food. I want you to feed them food out of my own kitchen, right out of the palace. Now, if you're a prisoner of war, you left your family, everything you had, everything you knew is left behind. You're taken away as a prisoner of war and you get there and then you get selected. You're not in a cage or a dungeon somewhere. You're eating at the palace. You're going to classes. We see potential in you. We want you to be one of us. You'd feel like this must be the favor of God on my life. Even though I got to make some compromises and eat eat some stuff that I really shouldn't be eating and do some things I shouldn't be doing. This, this must be the hand of God. It would be easy to justify just enjoying. It seems like God's taken a, a terrible situation and turned it around for my good. Listen to Daniel chapter one, starting in verse six. Now from among those of the sons of Judah, this is when they're, they're choosing the people that King Nebuchadnezzar once trained. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And you can read the rest of the story, how he just wants to eat vegetables instead of eating the fine things that that land had to offer. Now, there's other men that have been selected. And apparently, they didn't have the same determination not to defile themselves. It says, Daniel purposed in his heart, I'm not going to defile myself. I I don't care what this land has to offer. I don't care what sweetness they're trying to put in front of me. I've already made up my mind. I decided a long time ago. I've already made it the purpose of my heart. I won't defile myself. I'm going to live and behave, eat and drink everything I do. I want it to honor God. I won't step out of this. He'd already purposed it in his heart. He and a few of his friends said, listen, we're, we're going to abstain from the things that you're offering us. Apparently, the other guys didn't have that same determination. 
Apparently, they went ahead and enjoyed the food. But if you read the book of Daniel, it's filled with the exploits of what Daniel and those other men did who purposed in their heart right from the beginning. When the compromise seems small, I will not defile myself. God uses people that make a determination in their heart. I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to be holy. I'm going to honor God in everything that I do. I'm not going to turn aside so I can enjoy a a small pleasure of sin, something I could justify, something that would be totally understandable. I've purposed in my heart. I'm not going to turn this to the side. I'm going to set my face like flint. God uses people like that. The rest of those men, we don't know who they are. They just get absorbed into the culture of Babylon. But these men, we know their names. We know their stories. We know what God did in them and through them and the impact that they have. But it started by having a purpose in their heart. I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to be steadfast by purposing in my heart not to defile myself. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's talking about Jesus. Then when the time came, it's time for him to go to the cross. It's time for him to go and lay down his life. The time has come. It says that he steadfast, he set his face for Jerusalem. Steadfastly set his face. That means I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross. And it doesn't matter what, what things try to pull me aside. Even Peter tried to pull him aside. Lord, this isn't necessary. There's, there's got to be another way. And he rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. He steadfastly set his face to go and do what God has called him to do. One of the ways we resist the devil and keep ourselves on track is just by steadfastly setting our face, purposing in our heart, making that decision. I've decided, I've decided, I've decided. I'm following Jesus and I will never turn aside. One of the ways we remain steadfast and not allow situations and circumstances to sway us is by keeping God's word as the light for our path. Another way is to be like Daniel, to be like Jesus. It doesn't matter. I I, I once was in Judah. Now I'm in Babylon. It doesn't matter. My decision my purpose to not defile myself remains the same. Jesus steadfastly set his face. Let me give you one more and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast, be immovable. How? by knowing something, by knowing that your labor is not in vain. I used to work for a pastor who who asked me to put together an events committee and to plan different things, and we'd have concerts and different kinds of events. So I I put together this committee, and we would plan stuff out. We'd we'd meet. Let's have this band in. We would secure the location, line things up with the band, even get funding for it. And I can remember going and presenting it to the pastor. Here's what we've decided. Here's what we're going to do. It's all paid for. And he would say, I don't want to do that. Okay. We'd go plan, we would plan something else. We're, hey, we're, we've made arrangements. I've already talked. We're, we have an evangelist who's going to come in. We're going to do some meetings. We're going to have some music. It's going to be awesome. We've got it all, it's all paid for. Everything's lined up. Nah, I don't like that. So after having to call different people and cancel the arrangements we made, I know you said you'd pay for this, but you don't have to do that. I know you said you'd come. I know I asked you. I got to a point where I stopped meeting with that events committee because it was, it was futile. There was no point in doing it. I lost all motivation. I lost that desire to plan anything out, to jump through all the hoops because there, there was no fruit to it. it. It was all meaningless. 
when you are engaged in something that you feel like, what, what is the point? It keeps you from being steadfast. But in this passage of scripture, he says, be steadfast, be immovable. There's something you can know as you serve the Lord, knowing that your labor is never in vain. The New Living Translation says, knowing that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Think about that. Nothing you ever do for the Lord is useless. When you are faithful to do what God's called you to do, in small things, in big things, faithful to read your Bible, faithful to be kind, faithful to be honest, it is impossible for it not to be fruitful. Anytime you are faithful, you can know that it's going to be fruitful. It's impossible to be faithful without also being fruitful. So we've got to set our hearts and our minds, I'm going to be faithful. Why would I be faithful? Because I know every little thing that I do for the Lord, it's going to bear fruit. You can know. You've got to know in your heart everything I do, every single thing you've done for the Lord, everything you do today for the Lord, everything you do tomorrow for the Lord, God's word promises none of it's been in vain. Every little thing will bring forth fruit. And when you know that, it keeps you motivated to be steadfast. When you feel like, what's the point? I've served all these years. I've done all these things. I've been so faithful in my tithe. And when you start asking those kinds of questions, you're starting to, you're starting to veer off course. Knowing that your labor is not in vain. No, knowing nothing you've ever done for the Lord is useless. It's all fruitful. You might not see it, but you can know God's faithful. When you are faithful, you will also be fruitful. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. How do we not lose heart? How do we not give up? No, I'm going to see fruit from this. Don't grow weary. If you let yourself grow weary, first of all, it lets us know if you're growing weary, it's because you've allowed yourself to grow weary. You let it happen. I'm just growing so weary, well, stop. I'm just so weary and serving. Well, don't be. You're allowing yourself to be weary. It says don't let yourself grow weary. How? You can know something. You can know that you know that you know every little step I take towards Jesus, every little thing I do in fellowship with him, every little thing I do for his kingdom, it's going to bring forth fruit. What I do matters. What you do matters. And you're too important. You're too gifted. You're too anointed. You're too called to allow the enemy to convince you that what you're doing doesn't matter. As a stay-at-home mom, as a guy who works at the FBI, as a guy who works oil and gas, whatever your position in life is, everything you do for the Lord, it matters. God's aware of it. What you do matters. It's impossible for you to do anything for the Lord and it not matter. You've never done anything where God says, eh, I'm not impressed. It matters. It matters to him. Everything you do for God, God wants to put his blessing on it and cause it to bring forth fruit. Small, Jesus talked like that. He said, you can't even give someone a, a cup of cold water and not expect a harvest on it. What you do matters. And you need to know it. You've got to know it in your heart. Knowing that everything you do for God matters. That's how you be steadfast. That's how you remain immovable. Immovable. Like Paul in Acts 24, none of these things move me. I know what they're saying. It doesn't move me. I know what the consequences are going to be. It doesn't move me. I'm steadfast. I've decided. I've made a decision. I know what God's word says. I've staked my life on it. I've made the decision. And I know that everything I do, it matters. I'm going to see a reward. I know it brings forth fruit. That sets you up to be steadfast and immovable. Amen. Go ahead and stand to your feet. 
You will never be faithful without also being fruitful. And you'll never be fruitful without being faithful. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.